Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 944. At the top of today's show, David Lorla is joined by Bill Koch of the Providence Journal. David and Bill talk about watching the Red Sox defeat the Rays to move on to the ALCS, and how different the team's season has gone compared to expectations before and throughout the season. The pair discuss things like the return of Chris Sale, how raucous Fenway has been lately, the excellence of Garrett Whitlock, and that wild off-the-wall play in Game 4. Finally, Bill shares his thoughts on competitive balance, both across the league and in the playoffs. If teams are actively trying, actively spending, actively upgrading their talent base at the major league level, I want to see those teams in October. I want that to be the ethos throughout the sport. I I want to see teams putting their best foot forward annually. After that, Ben Clemens and Dan Zaborski get together to banter about a very busy playoff so far before Ben attends Dodgers-Giants Game 5. Ben and Dan discuss things like Tony La Russa's making a show in Game 4, the Brewers' offensive woes, Dan getting ejected from games as a little leaguer, and news coming out during recording about Lance McCullers' availability for the ALCS. Also, Ben and Dan share their thoughts on rivalries, especially the uneven ones. It feels weird when you're kind of a secondary rival for a team that's your primary rival. Oh, yeah. It's like when like a, a team's fan base thinks their big rivals are the Yankees. Right. And they might be, but you're not the Yankees' big rivals, Blue Jays or Orioles or Rays fans. Right. The Red Sox are. And no matter what, you are just kind of like the secondary. You're, you are the henchman in a Bond movie. But before we get to these great segments, I must urge you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the place for Fangraphs merch, but you can get an ad-free membership for blazing fast load times throughout the site. It is both the best way to browse and to support what we do, and we couldn't do it without your help. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Bill Koch, who covers the Red Sox for the Providence Journal. Providence, of course, being in Rhode Island, roughly an hour's drive from Fenway. Bill, you'll be making that drive another two, maybe five or six times in the coming weeks. How surprised are you by that? Yeah, if if you had asked me that, let's say the last week of the regular season, when it looked like the Red Sox were teetering a little bit and struggling to secure a wildcard berth, I would have said, yes, I'm surprised that they're in the American League Championship Series. But the way that it's played out, matching up against the Yankees and then against the Rays, I'm actually surprisingly not as surprised. I I actually felt like the Red Sox were a good matchup for the Yankees. And and then against the Rays, I actually felt like the Red Sox had the better top-end players. So I wasn't necessarily surprised that they won the series. I, I didn't expect it to play out the way it did over the four games. But the result, if you had said the Red Sox eliminated the Rays in the ALDS, I wouldn't have disputed too too much with you. Well, the way that it played out was, of course, insane. Right. But let's, uh, before we talk about the series, let's jump all the way back to this spring. Full disclosure, I did not have the Red Sox going to the postseason when we made our preseason predictions here at Fangraphs. I have to sheepishly admit that I actually did not have the Astros making it either, along with predicting that Shohei Otani would be the AL MVP. I had the Angels taking that division. Ah, wrong. (laughs) All that said, what were your expectations preseason, I guess, for the Red Sox or maybe for any other teams that surprised 
I remember very clearly I predicted 85 and 77 for the Red Sox. I did think they would be better. There's just too much talent there for them to be the struggling mess that they were in 2020. I thought Alex Cora would have an effect. I expected Chris Sale to come back at some point and help them. He certainly did. But I wasn't sure that that they had done enough to make themselves a playoff team. I looked at the rest of the American League, and obviously the Rays were going to be strong, the Yankees. Uh, I saw the Blue Jays in the ascendancy, and, and certainly that proved to be correct. So I wasn't necessarily certain that the Red Sox could secure one of the wildcard berths. As the season played out, they just started off much better than I anticipated. And really, they have this sort of resilience about them. You look at the come-from-behind victories out of their 96 wins so far, 49 have been come-from-behind. They have this sort of spirit, this sort of sandpaperiness, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, that I didn't really anticipate coming off such a bad season in 2020. So in my mind, yes, I, I think they've overachieved a bit according to my expectations. I would say elsewhere in baseball, I I certainly thought the Rays and the Yankees would be postseason teams. The Central, I thought the White Sox were really good. I'm with you, though. In the West, I wasn't necessarily certain that Houston losing George Springer with Justin Verlander hurt, with Zach Greinke aging, uh, I wasn't necessarily certain that they would hang on to the top spot in the West. I I would say it's a good shout by you that Shohei Otani winning the MVP, I I think that he's more than deserving considering what he's done. And, you know, with the Red Sox in mind, you and I certainly began to start believe when the team was rolling in the first half. We both got a little sour on them maybe when they started not being so good. Although, I think we're maybe a little more balanced in our view being in the press box for all of the games, whereas a lot of fans watching on TV, I think legitimately, not all, of course, many began to give up on this team. Is it fair to say that Red Sox fans, Red Sox Nation, as some like to call it, has developed the same sense of entitlement that they've long accused Yankee fans of having? I certainly think they expect to win, and, and when you look at the payroll and what the Red Sox spend every year, I think that expectation is valid. Um, you're also looking at a sport right now, David, that has a major competitive balance problem, in my mind. Uh, there are just too many teams who aren't trying, who aren't spending, who are all in for draft picks the following year, who aren't very active in free agency, who are pocketing profits off of revenue sharing instead of putting that money back into player signings. So I think when you look at the American League specifically, you could eliminate four or five teams right from the start. If you're going to tell me that there are five postseason spots available out of 10 instead of out of 15, and you consider what the Red Sox have in their roster and what they spend, I don't think it's unrealistic to expect Boston to be in the postseason with regularity. And I think that's why 2020 might have been so jarring for me. I just saw a team that, that really, in my mind, didn't put its best foot forward for, for various reasons. You go to the trade of Mookie Betts and, and David Price, obviously. You, you go to the Chris Sale injury. You go to some of the other things that happened with their starting pitching staff and with their position players. You know, But I, I certainly think that, that the Red Sox, just based on the landscape of the game, should be in position to play into October every year at this point. Which means that I should not be on a podcast dissing a certain uh, segment of, of Red Sox Nation, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fair criticism from the standpoint that the Red Sox and New England generally have done so much winning 
over the last two decades, it isn't the same as it was before. I go back to when I was seven or eight years old and the Red Sox were in the World Series in 1986. Uh, The Red Sox being in the ALCS was not an annual rite of passage at that point. Uh, The Red Sox being in the World Series was something special. Uh, I had to wait another 18 years until 2004 for them to reach it again. You know, now, if you're born in 2004, you've already seen Boston in four World Series and, and they're four games away from a fifth. You couple that with what the Patriots have done in New England, the fact that the Celtics and Bruins have both won titles. As a region, it has been lifted from where it was in the 80s. When you go back to the Celtics winning a championship in 1986, and then you had to wait all the way until 2001 for the Patriots to win a Super Bowl, you're you're talking 15 years, four major sports, 60 seasons, no titles. You go the next 20 years and you look at the championships that have been won here. I just think that bleeds into all four of the fan bases. I I don't think the Red Sox are exclusive in that way. And as far as the fervency of the fan base, though, I think it stands out that uh, Alex Cora and a few players asked about this in recent days have mentioned that the environment at Fenway on Sunday and Monday was as vibrant and loud as they've experienced at, at all, even with the previous World Series experiences. Yeah, I go back to the Yankees crowd for the wild card game. That was fantastic. I think you had a lot of sort of act and react dynamic in the building that night. There were a lot of Yankees fans who got tickets. Uh, and as we know, Red Sox and Yankees fans, are they love to fight like cats and dogs. And you put them in the stands and right in each other's faces, and they have a chance to give each other a hard time in person. That sort of cranked up that atmosphere. You look at Monday, a very unique day in the history of the city with a postponed Boston Marathon being run in the morning and then a Red Sox playoff game at night. Uh, It was just a fascinating dynamic, I think. I I know you were in the ballpark that night. I remember getting there, you know, earlier in the day, probably around two o'clock for a seven o'clock first pitch. And, you know, just walking the streets, it did feel very much like a holiday in October. You know, a very unusual circumstance, beautiful weather, Folks out enjoying themselves. Uh, we are, you know, sort of on the the outer reaches of the pandemic at this point. After being, you know, so caught in that throughout 2020, so miserable, uh, so difficult for so many people, um, you would have expected a, a little bit of a rebirth here in in 2021. So I think there are a lot of factors coming together here that are creating the environments that that you and I have gotten to experience at Fenway over the last few nights. And the environments, of course, as as we've been saying, were insane. One of the more insane things, of course, happened was the Game 3 play where Kevin Kiermeyer hit a gap shot that bounced off the low wall, off Hunter Renfro, and then into the bullpen. That was maybe the most meaningful stroke of fortune or misfortune, I guess, if you were rooting against the Red Sox in the whole series. What do you recall thinking when that happened, looking around at, you know, people in the press box? I know you were sitting next to Tyler Kepner, the New York Times. I was right down down the, the aisle and uh, I admittedly had no idea what the ruling would be. Yeah, I didn't know what the call would be. Uh, I've never seen a play like that before. I, I know some folks after the fact went back and found some video of a Rays game at Toronto in 2019, where there was a ball that deflected off a fielder and went into the stands at Rogers Center. Uh, Kevin Cash asked for an interpretation from the umpires, and they made the call. And I think that went a long way towards 
why Kevin Cash was so accepting of the ruling the other night. If you read the rule, it's pretty cut and dried in in my mind. There is no discretion for the umpires. Uh, The batter and the base runner or base runners are awarded two bases, and that's it. There's no latitude for a judgment call on behalf of Sam Holbrook and, and his crew. It was about a 10 or 15 second discussion with Cash after they went to video review and and spoke with New York, and that was that. In terms of the play itself, never seen anything like it. Very fortunate circumstance, obviously, for the Red Sox. And they made the most of it by striking out Mike Zanino with runners at second and third, and then walking it off in the bottom of the 13th. And just one of those things that you see in a postseason baseball game that gets magnified. It is one play, yes, but it is a play that will live in Boston lore perhaps in a little wider baseball lore as we go forward. Kevin Cash, of course, making a lot of big managerial decisions in the series in that game, certainly as did Alex Cora. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the strategy, which I guess by extension goes into really the postseason in today's era. When you wrote about that game three, Bill, you know, the 13-inning game that ended with the Vasquez walk-off, you noted that the Rays used Andrew Kittredge, who is probably their best reliever, uh, in the third inning. So he was long gone before, you know, the 13th happened, before the ninth happened. You know, in game four, Kittredge pitched, I believe it was maybe the fourth and fifth inning with the Rays down by several runs. Do you think that moves like that are really, I don't know if defensible is probably the wrong word. Are they the right moves? I'm caught in two minds on it, David, because I, I wonder at that point who will get the last six outs of the game. The counter to that, of course, is you have to get to the last six outs of the game. Uh, if you look at the White Sox series against the Astros, Liam Hendricks threw three innings in that series, and, and they were relatively meaningless. You, know, you see Aaron Bummer sort of cleaning up in, in, a, in a game four that's already out of hand. You know, I, I look at Kevin Cash and what he did with, with Kittredge and with Pete Fairbanks and you know, he used them in a manner to keep games close at a point where he felt like they could have gotten away from his team. Uh, and I certainly see the merits of that because it worked in, on both occasions. They slowed the Red Sox offense. They allowed themselves to get a little bit of time and, and you know, potentially have more opportunities at the plate against Boston's bullpen, which in the seventh and the eighth inning, they were a little shaky in the series. You know, you're you're always going to wonder who will have the ball for the last three outs, particularly in the road game in the bottom half of an inning. It is a very intense pressure pack situation. But I understand what Kevin Cash was doing and and why he was doing it. I I also think, David, that that's the way he's managed all year and, and for a period of years. And I think one of the most important things for a manager to be is consistent. If you're on Kevin Cash's roster, You're not looking at Andrew Kittredge coming in in the third or fourth inning and thinking, Kevin's panicking. This is unusual. This is something he's never done before. You're looking and thinking, yeah, Kevin's going to Kittredge. He wants our offense to have a chance in the fourth, fifth, sixth inning. Let's have Kittredge put up a few zeros, and and then maybe we can respond here. No, which, of course, he did. You know, I can maybe defend Tony La Russa a little bit. It's, I, I know that this is not really what people do these days, but, you know, putting in Liam Hendricks when he did, he never had an opportunity to use Hendricks in anything resembling a key point. There was never leverage. So it was use him or just let him sit and rot in the pen. But jumping back to big outs, 
I think the unsung hero of the entire series is Garrett Whitlock for what he did in game four. How good has he been? I mean, really, you talk about composure, you know, somebody who is advanced well beyond his experience, someone who can get right-handed and left-handed hitters out, throws three premium pitches, has the makeup of a starter in 2022, if, if we're being honest. But the way that they're using him now for multiple innings at the back end of the bullpen, uh, he's been superb for this team from start to finish. Uh, you could argue that in a lot of ways he has been their most valuable pitcher, certainly their most valuable reliever. Gives Alex Cora you know, such a wonderful chess piece to use in these games, whether it be right after a starter or at the back end of the bullpen. The thing about Whitlock for me is just his willingness to challenge, to throw strikes with all three pitches, and to just be unflappable while he's doing it. He, he's really, really impressive. And Wetlock, of course, coming into the game, game four, after the Rays had tied the game and had a runner on second with nobody out. And this young shortstop named Wander Franco was coming to the plate. And I do recall sitting in the press box thinking to myself, okay, they have to face arguably the best young hitter in the game in a key situation. And Whitlock got, if I'm remembering correctly, a dribbler back to the mound. He got him out twice. On two straight nights, I think facing him in game three might have helped in that spot. He threw him a changeup, and, and Franco rolled over and grounded to first. Game four, he you know he's a little deeper into the count with Franco, but he went back to the changeup down and away, and he got a soft fly to right field. And, and I think that's one of those things that, that Whitlock sort of used experience against Franco in, in that spot. I, I think... When you're in a big at bat like that, uh, you know, the adrenaline's pumping. They are real people. It, it isn't just, you're not necessarily just going to revert to performance over the course of the year. I, I think Franco really wanted to do something impactful there, given the momentum of the inning and, and what had happened previously. And sometimes the answer is just to throw a little slower, you know, be a little smarter, uh, try to spot a pitch and allow the hitter to get himself out. And, and I think Whitlock did a really good job of that. And, and I would say that that is a collective effort, you know, by Boston's coaching staff, catchers, and Whitlock himself being able to execute a pitch. At yesterday's workout, you know, the workout day yesterday, press conference, Alex Cora was asked if Chris Sale would start or relieve in the ALCS. And his answer was sort of a Belichickian, you know, he will pitch. I don't know if he has said any more since then, but what is your expectation? Do you think Sale will be starting? You know, I actually wrote for Thursday's Journal that uh, there is an argument against him starting in, in this series. And, and I think it, it has to do with his splits against right and left-handed hitters. And it has to do with Houston's splits against right and left-handed pitchers. You look at Sale's last two outings. Granted, it's a small sample. But against Washington, the strikeouts are impressive. Two and a third innings is not. Against Tampa, only one inning in game two and had to be saved by Tanner Houck. You know, he's had a really good, difficult time since he's come off the injured list against right-handed hitters, an 824 OPS against, only 346 OPS against when he's facing left-handed hitters. Uh, now, you look at Houston's lineup, you have a fair amount of guys there who are non-negotiables. They are not going to mix and match like the Rays, Gurriel, Altuve, Correa, Bregman. They're going to play against everybody doesn't matter, left, right, or, or indifferent. So I think there is an argument to be made 
to start Nathan Evaldi in game one on full rest, and I think they will do that. Game two, I think, is the interesting decision that Alex Cora has to make. Will he go with Chris Sale? Will he go with Eduardo Rodriguez, whose numbers away from Fenway this year were better than his numbers at home? And then potentially, would he give a start to Nick Pavetta or someone like Tanner Houck, who has been really difficult on right-handed hitters this season, certainly more difficult than Chris Sale has been? And while I admittedly don't have their left-right splits in fr- in front of me here, it's not as though the Astros are lacking for good left-handed bats. They, of course, have Michael Brantley, Kyle Tucker, who may have had the best offensive season on that team, and uh, Jordan Alvarez, who is on the short list of baseball's most underrated hitters. Now, the Astros hit everybody, and, and they do it uh, with pretty equal menace. You know, But I, I looked specifically at their right-handed hitters in preparing the piece, they're 754 OPS right-right, and they're 834 OPS against left-handers. Bregman, in particular, is somebody who really hammers left-handed pitching in his career, a 981 OPS. He has homered off Chris Sale in the postseason before. Uh, I would imagine he'd be licking his chops to, to get an at-bat against Sale in an October game, with the stakes being what they are. You know, so I'm I'm just really intrigued as to whether or not the Red Sox will play the personalities or whether or not they'll play the numbers when they decide to go with their starting rotation here for this series. You you look at what they did against Tampa, certainly Pavetta and Hauk can perform in bulk bullpen roles. They they've proven that. You know, the temptation, of course, though, is to give them the ball at the start of the game and then maybe find a pocket for sale against Tucker, Alvarez, Brantley. You know, maybe Jason Castro, if, if he gets a start for whatever reason over Martin Maldonado. You know, maybe if Garrett Stubbs finds himself on the roster and, and in the game for whatever reason. You know, maybe Sale would be more effective in a matchup over an inning, two innings. And, and if you could use him two or three times in the series, that would allow you to drop someone off the roster like Austin Davis. You, you might say that Sale would be more effective than, than carrying Austin Davis as a bullpen left-hander. So... You know, I think they have real discussions here, you know, and there's certainly discussions that they would not have had in 2017 or 2018. And we are starting to run short on time, Bill, so maybe I can put you on the spot with a few predictions. What should fans expect from this Red Sox-Astros series? Are we looking at seven games maybe, or do you think that one team is going to knock this off a little earlier? I do like Houston in the series. I thought The Red Sox had more top-end players than the Rays. Uh, I think Houston matches them in in that way. I like Houston's pitching staff. This is not the Justin Verlander, Zach Greinke group of before, but there are some young arms there who are very talented. If you look at Urquidy and Valdez and Luis Garcia, you know, I I look at Houston sort of in this fifth straight ALCS, and I think Correa could leave in free agency. It feels a little bit like a last ride for, for this group. You know, and I, I wonder how Boston will match up. I think the home environments are going to be great, considering the history between the two teams, the two previous playoff meetings, the sign-stealing fallout, Alex Cora's involvement in, in this again. I think it's going to be wonderful. I, I would look at Houston in six games if I had to make a prediction for the series. I just think that the Astros lineup is going to be a bit too relentless, and they'll have just enough on the pitching staff to get it done. And let's jump over, Bill, to the National League. We are talking on Thursday afternoon, so the Dodgers-Giants game is still several hours away from uh, from first pitch. Prediction with that? 
you know, uh, one, you know, we can wake up uh, tomorrow when this podcast airs and maybe one or both of us will look like an idiot. <laughs> I'm happy to look like an idiot. I've been accused of it before. Logan Webb was fantastic in game one. Can he do it again in game five? I- I'm curious about that. What a wonderful series, though, between 200-win teams, the two old rivals. I would have to shade the Giants, believe it or not. I get the sense that Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey and a guy like Chris Bryant and maybe even Evan Longoria, they might feel like this is their last best chance to get to a World Series and win a championship. I think the window for the Dodgers is going to be open for a little longer. And I think San Francisco will seize the moment. I think Logan Webb will be good again. They'll have just enough in that bullpen, maybe multiple innings from Camilo Duvall tonight, and you'll see the Giants win a very tense, tight Game 5 in San Francisco. I can't. My temptation, Bill, is to agree with you in part because of the home field advantage. I will go with the Dodgers. I think that I would rather see the Giants win. I think that would be better for baseball to get a fresh team in the, in the World Series. Actually, let's. I'd like to apologize to every Atlanta Braves fan who just heard that because they certainly have an opportunity to go to the series themselves. So, yeah, so I think L.A. tonight, I think who who wins this will beat Atlanta. Again, sorry, Braves fans. Who do you think, Bill, wins the World Series? If you had to put me on the spot right now, I think, wow, it's a very good question. I think the winner of Giants-Dodgers will win the World Series. I, I think they will go through against Atlanta. That's no disrespect to the Braves. They've had a great run. Uh, but I think that the Giants and the Dodgers are, are more talented. Um, and I actually think that, that either one of those teams would be a little bit deeper on the pitching staff than Houston or Boston. You know, obviously, I, I just picked the Astros to get to the World Series. I think the Giants or the Dodgers would both have maybe an extra arm or two that might make the difference in, in what I would see as a long series, at least six or seven games. I, I don't think that would be brief. Uh, I think all three of those teams are, are really good and have had great seasons. I would not expect anything, you know, along the lines of five games or so. You know, but I would say that the winner of Giants Dodgers in game five, I would have to install them as my World Series favorite. And I had Houston winning the series when we made our postseason predictions at Fangraph. So I will stick with that. Very good. Yeah, jumping back to the Braves very briefly, when they lost Acuna Jr., I thought that was it. To me, that is not Acuna Jr. is not quite Mike Trout, but that is similar, losing a player of that caliber. Obviously, the Braves have far more depth than an Angels team that seems destined to never win. But yes, with Acuna Jr., this team is maybe. You know, maybe I do say they beat the winner of tonight's game. I just love what the Braves did at the trade deadline. I, I love the fact that even with Acuna Jr. out, and he's clearly their best player, the Braves evaluated the NL East and said, we can win this division if we make a few moves. They were so aggressive. Uh, they brought in some guys with certain pedigree. Jack Peterson obviously has played deep into October before. Uh, Jorge Soler, before he hit the COVID-19 list was somebody who they bought low on, uh, somebody who really struggled last season, but you know, just recently was a very impactful bat in the Royals lineup. You know, I just liked Atlanta's aggression, and, and I like the fact that they're rewarded for it by ending up in the NLCS. That That's actually really the way I felt about the Blue Jays as well. I really wanted to see Toronto in the playoffs. I, I thought them spending on Springer and on Semyon 
and then bringing in Barrios at the trade deadline. I think that that sort of proactivity should be rewarded in postseason berths. I think that would be good for the game. Um, you know, and that goes back to the competitive balance point that I was making before. If teams are actively trying, actively spending, actively upgrading their talent base at the major league level, I want to see those teams in October. I want that to be the ethos throughout the sport. I, I want to see teams putting their best foot forward annually. You know, and so I applaud Atlanta for making it this far, considering the caliber of the player that they lost. And something that would be very bad for the game is if the Solaire COVID turns into a COVID outbreak that the Red Sox had to battle through and the Braves are missing key players or any players in the postseason. So I think we should all keep our fingers crossed as I think it's clear that this country, the world is not completely through the pandemic yet. Bill, we have gone over time. I will see you in the press box very soon. And I think that it's safe to say that we're going to be back into uh, an electric environment. So thank you very much for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. David, thank you. My pleasure. Okay. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Hey, welcome to this segment of the show. I'm Ben Clemens, joined by a probably equally frazzled Dan Zimborski. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Uh, I guess frazzled is is what I'm supposed to be. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to think it's more of my normal mental state, just because that's me. <laughs> yeah, it's been um, it's been a busy week. There's been a lot of baseball to watch. Yesterday was an off day, and I I spent it like updating all the things that I haven't been doing because I've been so busy watching, you know, baseball. Nine hours a day of baseball. Exactly. It's great. It's a great problem. You see, we have to cram now because it's going to be gone in a few weeks and then we're going to be sad. And then because of the collective bargaining agreement, nothing's going to happen for two months and we'll be bored out of our gourds. So I'm just uh, embrace the weariness now. I'm actually going to the Dodgers Giants game tonight just as a spectator. Oh, you're you're going as a civilian, as a civilian. Exactly. You have to put your gun and your badge on the desk before you go into the stadium. Got to be the best game of the year, right? I mean, I guess if there's a Game 7 of an Astros-Dodgers World Series, maybe that would be better. This is going to be an incredible game. The two best teams in baseball playing a winner-take-all game in a cool stadium when they've never played. I don't think they've played in the playoffs since moving to California. You know, they had the shot herder on the World game, but that doesn't count. I, yeah, I guess it doesn't count. For, like, these fan bases. Yeah, but, you know, fan bases are, are, are pretty fluid these days. I mean, in the end, we are rooting for laundry. It's true. Which has always been one of those truisms that that's like less profound than it sounds, but it, it's it's kind of true. Speaking of laundry, the socks. Oh, see what I did there? I didn't know you were going to do that. Well done. The socks. The Tony Larusa created a little bit of intrigue in the final game of their season, uh, accusing them of plunking Jose Abreu. You had Tapera accusing the the Astros of cheating again going into the game. So do you think this was good, justified, bad, unjustified, good for baseball, bad for baseball? Because I do think we could use more feuds. I think we could use more feuds. I think Tapera's thing was really dumb. Like, I don't begrudge him doing it. You can say what you want. He's a grown man. But I don't know. Saying that, like, we got more swinging strikes in game three, they're probably cheating, does not show a strong understanding of statistics, I would say. Yeah, and why did they only score one run in that final game? Did they also brainwash the White Sox into right. not knowing the signs? And do you think the Astros relearned the signs after game three? Because they really put it on them in game four. Yeah, it's all it's all part of the con. Just like Kendall Graveman 
waiting until what was it the the sixth picture the sixth pitch of the at bat to to plunk Abreu. He just right. thought he'd he 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 just you know waste a bunch of pitches before to to keep the oh, cover yeah. so up there. Throw a couple really outside. That one was stupider, but I don't blame Larusa for just taking the time with his team already eliminated to make the team like him more. Like that's probably a smart managerial play to go. You could tell he was trying to get thrown out of the game. And the umpire was like, well, what are you arguing? Like, he clearly didn't hit him on purpose. Do you want me to throw him out of the game? He was out there for, what, four minutes? Just (laughs) not with enough effort to get thrown out of the game. I think everyone knows you can get run if you want to. When Earl Weaver wanted to get tossed from the game, Earl Weaver would get tossed from the game. Yeah, I think he just wanted to make a point. I thought it was a silly point. And I think his comments after the game were really... Really not thinking things through, saying, what did he say? They were classless? There was a character deficiency? Yeah, uh, I forget the exact word. I think it was character. Buddy, like, the Dusty Baker versus Tony La Russa matchup does have a character deficiency, but it's not coming down the way you think it is. Character shortage is the exact term he used. Yeah, no one has more character than Dusty Baker, and plenty of people have more than Tony La Russa. I found that pretty tasteless but i don't really mind him trying to get the troops rallied for next year whatever like <laughs> i i feel a little hypocritical because i'm i'm criticizing him for getting thrown out of the game when when i was one of the few kids to get thrown out of little league games on multiple occasions yeah i don't think it was <laughs> so yeah i mean how do you get thrown out of a little league game by the way well i was a 12 year old and let's see I've, i i argued balls and strikes which sure but a lot i i once argued an out call and it involved the umpire's mom something i said at 12 which <laughs> I, was a little advanced for my age which is say without going into specifics so i mean i i've i've mellowed slightly over the years i was i was i was a jerk little kid yeah i guess my point would be there's just no like no one needed that long of a thing I don't think even Larusa thought he was doing anything reasonable. I don't think this is going to be a real feud. Just like what is what is the White Sox specific beef with the Astros that they beat them? That's pretty much the beef. Yeah, I will see why there are real feuds in baseball, and I am with you. I like them; they're fun. I mean, the last playoff game I went to as a fan before this one was Red Sox Yankees. I'm not a fan of either team. It was just fun. Now, now I, I should note that there is history between Baker and Larusa. It's true. You can go back to some, some of those Giants Cardinal series. And uh, who was it? it was what was it? Bonds and Kent were plunked. Yeah, in consecutive at bats, and and what Baker a fit about it. comes off looking like the jerk in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a a much less discerning Cardinals fan as a child, and oh, I thought Larusa was the best, and Baker was the worst, and that's a good reminder that not everything you believe as a kid is true. Now, speaking of misconceptions that are, are, are destroyed for you as, as you get an adult, how do you feel about what could be a series with nobody to root for? I don't hate the Astros. Or an ALCS. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not going to be the most fun series in the world. It's the Alex Cora cheat bowl, I guess. <laughs> They're not going to print out t-shirts for that, I don't think. <laughs> It would be a good T-shirt if someone did that. Find like a uh, an old like Super Bowl, like a very early Super Bowl, like a low res like seventies logo. Make it the Alex Cora cheating bowl. I don't know why you would have heard this story in particular, but this kind of reminds me of this is not really a a rivalry. Even if someone tries to make it the Alex Cora, this or that, UConn tried to start a rivalry with 
Central Florida in football. So they came up with a trophy. They brought it down to Central Florida. They got beaten badly. They came out to give the trophy to Central Florida, but Central Florida didn't know the rivalry existed, didn't know there was a trophy, and left, and the trophy was just on the field. <laughs> that, that That's embarrassing. Imagine having an arch nemesis who has no idea that anything's weird. Yeah. It would be the worst Marvel movie ever. <laughs> I think it could be like a good conceptual thriller. Oh, it, it could be. Uh, to bring this back to baseball, oh. I was very confused why the Brewers' greatest rival was the Cardinals. Because I said, oh, the Cardinals have lots of rivals. And my wife, big Brewers fan, and her family were like, well, this is the problem. <laughs> Did the Cardinals have lots of rivals or do Cardinals fans have lots of rivals? Uh, yeah, it's Cardinals <laughs> fans. I feel like every fan base in the NL Central hates the Cardinals. And Cardinals fans are annoyed at all those fan bases for hating them. Are you, that's a fair read. So are you, do you consider yourself one of the best fans in baseball? No, I think I've I've long since lost my membership card, unfortunately. You know, I, I still like the Cardinals. I'll still root for them if I'm watching a game, and I, I still follow their transactions. But I don't know. If, I mean, presumably this is how you are with the Orioles. It's hard to remain, you know, a rabid fan when you're trying to think about baseball in a fair-minded way and also cover the whole league. Yeah, it's something I've talked about uh, in panels and the like. It's different for every writer, I think. I Some feel differently. But for me, I love baseball just as much as I did, say, 30 years ago. But I consume baseball in a different way than I did 30 years ago. I'm not really living and dying with what the Orioles or any team or really any player does. I'm fascinated by it and i love watching it but i'm more interested you know in great matchups and and great duels between pitchers and hitters of of like elite quality uh than than anything else it's just it's it's still fandom but it's 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 different now yeah i think that makes a lot of sense i don't know what are the orioles fans called depressed <laughs> they're called ravens fans this time of year yeah that, that's fair what do you call an orioles fan in september a ravens fan now, the Brewers, you see, think of the Brewers, it doesn't feel like they have any good NL teams to hate. When I think of Brewers enemies, I still think of AL East teams because that's what I was raised on. I mean, I will still occasionally, if someone came up to me in the street and like stuck a gun in like the base of my back and said, quick, what league are the Brewers in? I might <laughs> say the American League. Astros too. Yeah, Astros too. They're an NL West team. I think of them seeing games of I, I imagine myself as a kid uh, watching games on uh, on the TV during the season because in Baltimore we did get WWOR, so we got a lot of Mets games, and so we we saw a lot of Houston games, saw a lot of Houston against Atlanta games as well because you know TBS. Turner, so yeah. so, so it feels like they're an, an NL team, and it really feels like they should still trade. Like okay, Bud Selig is not the commissioner anymore. Houston, you go back to the Central. We go back in the be in the NL Central. The Brewers. I guess, can go to the AL Central and maybe Minnesota could go to the West. So let me tell you who the Brewers' biggest rival is. It's the Cardinals. And I think it actually makes a lot of sense because the Brewers have made the World Series once and the Cardinals beat them. And then they switch to the Cardinals division and the Cardinals are just always the end boss. So I, I totally understand why the Cardinals are their, their truest rival. But the Cubs are kind of a rival too. The Cubs take over American Family Field. American family food. whenever there are games in Milwaukee because the tickets are a lot cheaper than Chicago I think they've actually fit in okay in the NL Central I think the big problem is that you know, the Pirates have not been very good for quite a while the Reds I don't know have never really put it together those rivalries feel kind of stilted to me but Brewers Cubs and Brewers Cardinals I'm into it 
it feels weird when you're kind of a secondary rival for a team that's your primary rival. Oh, yeah. It's like when like a, a team's fan base thinks their big rivals are the Yankees. Right. And they might be, but you're not the Yankees' big rivals, Blue Jays or Orioles or Rays fans. Right. The Red Sox are. And no matter what, you are just kind of like the secondary. You are you are the henchman in a Bond movie. Which, yeah. I mean, that's it's fine, too. I mean, you could be Odd Job, which is very good. You could be Jaws. But you could also be one of a, of a, of a plethora of forgettable secondary henchmen, like the dude in Die Another Day who's thing was that he had diamonds that were stuck in his face for unknown reason even though it looked like you could just take them out but that's that's for a james bond related podcast i guess <laughs> taking a quick turn yeah so speaking of the playoffs again and sticking on the brewers that's that's what we call a professional transition in the business Segway. i don't see how this brewers team can look at this season and go into next season and not say that a lot needs to be fixed they had a good year but a lot of that was that Three of their pitchers had what may be career years, and their offense was just abysmal. I mean, you saw it in the series. The Braves have good pitchers, but the Brewers scored six runs. Yeah, Avi <laughs> Garcia should not be a huge part of your offense. And he's actually been quite solid. He was quite solid this year. But yeah, totally, he shouldn't be totally like the second hitter. piece of your offense. If he's your sixth hitter, like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's and maybe if, if Devin Williams hadn't broken his hand, that we would be talking a different story right now. But uh I don't know. It's hard to win if you only score yeah. six runs. They did they got shut out in two of the games they lost. <laughs> that is true. That is true. But in any case, it's the same criticism that we have about pretty much most of the NL Central because last offseason in a winter where it looked like none of the NL Central teams were going to take strong advantage of of the the players available in free agency every team kind of should feel guilty if they were a playoff team this year and didn't go all out last offseason yeah the Brewers if they had some bats it might be different I give the Cardinals credit they did, yeah. For most of the offseason, they didn't really do much, but they did bring in Arenado, and you have to give him credit for that. Yeah, that's a big acquisition. I mean, if the Brewers added him, they'd be a lot better. Yeah, and the Cardinals would not have had him. Yeah, but yeah, the Brewers just, they bought low on Colton Wong, which is a nice, opportunistic, Brewers-esque move. I thought that was a good one. But they didn't do anything else this offseason, and... You know, their bad offense, I mean, let's just call it what it is, bad offense, is after trading for Willie Adamas and Eduardo Escobar. Like, they came into the season with a terrible offense. Yeah, and they, they tried to fix it on the fly. I mean, you had Vogelback and, and, and Rowdy, Rowdy, and my headcanon for the Brewers, I like to, in the Rockies, in the Arenado trade, I like to imagine that the Brewers were in the bidding for the for Arenado, but they only asked the Rockies for $30 million. And the Cardinals asked for $50 million, and the Rockies didn't understand how negotiations work. Oh, $50 million, That's a bigger number. We'll go for that. I think that is probably not what happened, but I oh. do think that'd be funny if it did. I like to imagine the Monforts are just sitting there waiting. Okay, the Cardinals are going to send us that $50 million check soon, aren't they? We'll just, right. we'll just tell our staff to make sure to check the mailbox because that $50 million check is going to be in there soon. Yeah, they just continue refreshing. I want that to be a thing. Yeah, I mean, that was not a good trade for the Rockies. But, I mean, the Brewers should have been willing to... Maybe R&R doesn't fit their team very well, but they should have been willing to spend more on someone. They don't have a huge payroll. I kind of get the sense that it's going to happen again next year. It feels like they have a narrow margin, right? Like, Christian Yelich, he's getting paid $26 million a year for the rest of time, essentially, until 2027. He's not going to get younger. Lorenzo Cain is, you know, he's not aging particularly well. 
their pitchers aren't going to be under control forever. They should really be trying to win now. And I think this playoff series kind of showed you, yeah, they're they're very good at patching holes in season, but the the strategic tilt just was not there. No, ab- absolutely. But I mean, fit Schmidt in a way because it's it's kind of a problem. Like, say you have a Ferrari and you win like a Lamborghini on a game show, and you need a lawnmower. It's not really a problem that you want a Lamborghini instead of a lawnmower. That's true. But anyway, one team we haven't talked about in the playoffs, there's also Giants-Dodgers, but since we're recording right before this game and people are going to hear this right after the game, it'll kind of mess up. We'll have a whole Inception thing if we talk too much about them. But the Braves, are we still sitting too low on the Braves? Because this was a team that if at the start of the season you told me, well, Acuna Jr. is going to tear his ACL and miss like half the season. Mike Soroka will not be back, and he might never be back. (laughs) Marcelo Zuna will be terrible, and then he'll be arrested for a horrible crime and may never play baseball again. Where would you expect the Braves to be in the standings? Ah, so it's a trick question because, yeah, like very, very bad. But how many games would you expect them to win? I had them at 91, but they won 88 despite all that. It's true. And at the time, I was assuming that Mike Soroka would come back midseason. I was assuming that Marcelo Zuna would give him three wins or whatever. Yeah, yeah, would be a good player who did not do horrible things, apparently, allegedly. And that, you know, we would have a whole season of Acuna, which none of which they had. Yeah. Now, Acuna did you know, do his utmost to keep the team in it for the 82 games he played. He, he was off to a just stellar start. But yeah, I mean... Only a half season of Acuna alone feels like it should have kept him out of the playoffs. The NL East is kind of a disaster, but I do think we're too low on the Braves. The Orioles could win a five or seven game series. Right. Anyone could win a series against anyone, but the Braves, they have a lot more offense than you think, basically. I think we also made the mistake in not realizing the chance for the Mets to just blow up because of being the Mets. We thought it was kind of a Wilpon thing (laughs) and that with the new ownership that Nothing hilarious and horrible will happen at the same time, but it kind of did. And the Phillies, of course, had one of the most lackadaisical seasons for an almost contending team uh, last year. I remember that I wrote about Kyle Gibson's acquisition by the Phillies as just like the most gross. This is how baseball works now. We just want to save money. We don't actually want the best pitcher available. We don't. And like, we'll even give up Spencer Howard, a, a really good prospect to do it. Because this guy has a low ERA this year and our fans will like it. And it was like, I just never thought he was really going to work out. And it felt like if they were willing to spend more money or spend more prospects, they would have won the division. I, I think when you are a serious contender in a large market and Matt Moore starts 13 games for you in 2021, something very, very serious has gone wrong. Yeah. And that there hasn't been like, you know, mass firings after this because I think most teams in this position, there would be a cleaning out. I mean, you look at the disappointment in San Diego, pretty much everyone's gone except for A.J. Preller, and he's probably gone the next time they have a disappointing season. But the Phillies are largely intact. Dan, we've got some breaking news that's going to make you angry about your ALCS. Yeah, I heard Meg Meg uh, messaged me that I have to change my table. Yeah, uh, Lance McCullers, most likely out for the ALCS. Brutal news for the Astros. Yeah, I was leaning with him being healthy simply because it seemed to be such a lack of a concern for them. And you could argue it could be an excuse for pulling him after four innings. I think it was a totally reasonable sabermetric pull. Like I, Yeah, it was reasonable. I was watching the game and I didn't think, oh, I wonder if he's hurt. I thought, oh, like that's pretty aggressive by Dusty, but okay. 
Yeah, I mean, they were up 5-1, to one, I believe, at that point. I think he had seen, like, exactly 18 batters, maybe. Yeah, but losing McCullers is, is a pretty big deal. This is a team that has lost a lot of starting pitching over the last several years. I mean, you look at some of the pitchers that have gone through that are just gone now. And even Granke, who's still on the roster, they can't really count on him to start. And they weren't using him as a starter in, in the playoffs. And Yeah, I assume he is now their starter. Yeah, it's it's getting to the point where they're going to have to probably start some guys that they might not have otherwise. Uh, I think of Christian Javier who was a starter at the top of the season. He kind of went to the bullpen, not because he stunk, but because kind of a numbers issue. And he, they, they didn't really stretch him out towards the late season until that until his start a few days ago where he threw, I think, 56 pitches. Right. But this is testing. Uh, I mean, this is a very tough cobbling job given to Dusty Baker. Well, I think Urquidy is actually good. I, I think there's a little bit of Urquidy erasure in the way that everyone's acting like, you know, oh, can we get Javier stretched out quickly enough? Well, Jose Arquiti has a he only has 177 innings in the majors, but four FIP, a 3.50 ERA, doesn't walk that many guys, strikes out his fair share. He's a perfectly serviceable pitcher, I think. Oh, I think he's fine, but I think you already needed him to start as the roster standard uh, stood. Yeah, that's true. In a seven game series, right? He's their fourth starter. Yeah, I mean, right now they're they're if if you don't have McCullers, their healthy starters who have been starting are Garcia, Valdez, and Arquiti. Right. And after that, then you kind of have to get into the creative zone. You have to get into, you know, bullpen games. You have to get into seeing what Zach Granke can do. Well, Granke has been starting. He's just not yeah. necessarily effective. I think he's pitched one game in relief, and it was the last game of the season. Didn't he start the, at the end of the season? No. He has one appearance where he threw two innings in Oakland. And I think it was just to test coming in from the bullpen. Okay, but they were very careful with him against the uh, the White Sox. Yeah. I mean, Did he pitch? He 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 did he he had a uh, game three it was I think okay like a mop up it was like the fourth or fifth okay but yeah they they haven't used him much and if we are wrong you can correct us in the comments below nah you are correct pitched one inning had one strikeout seems perfectly reasonable oh, gave up two hits that's not great in any case yeah I guess he's in the maybe they'll do some kind of the uh, Javier Grinky piggyback situation it's rough that's a that's a really tough injury against a deep lineup what it comes down to is they they have to trust Granky at, at some point again and it depends if you if not him then who and the question is can you trust Granky? can you trust javier or suddenly strikes out as a starter again it, it's an interesting challenge it's too bad it's going to ruin my beautiful symmetry i had in the projection i don't know if you saw it i did i love that i've never had to go to the, the decimal plate beyond the one past the 10th percentage place for those that don't see, because it's going to be changed in, in a few minutes or by the time you read this, certainly, Zibs had, based on the assumptions I made for the rotation, the Astros at 50.0004% to win the uh, series, and the Red Sox at 49.9996, which pleased me, but I think that the Red Sox are going to get a get a slight advantage now, which which makes me sad from a number nerd standpoint. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, slight advantage. I bet you they'll be like 53% or something. So you remember this guy earlier in our discussion who who put the gun at the back yeah. of my back and demanded I tell him what league the Brewers were in? Sure thing. Okay, now you have to pick a Boston-Houston champion. Okay. And so who is it? Is the same guy holding a gun to my back? He's a real jerk. He, He's already did... done this with me, and you were nearby. And I, say, I guess he caught a plane or something? Well, no. Th in, in, in this theoretical world, we've also flown to like ah, the same place. I see. I will still pick the Astros. I'm going to take the Red Sox. 
Yeah. But I was already going to take the Red Sox, I think. I don't know. I think the odds play as the Red Sox. I don't know what the, you know, what the new series price is. I'm sure that the Red Sox are favorites. I just really like this Houston team, which is a strange thing to say. I'm probably the one person outside of Houston. But I think their their lineup is just so deep and so good. And it wouldn't shock me if the Red Sox pitching, which has been I mean, really just kind of hanging on by a string, and they're doing a lot of weird stuff with their pitching, right? They're yeah, they've been they're creative. Doing but the Red Sox pseudo were pre- opening, and the Red Sox were pretty creative with their pitching uh, in, in this in the, in the last series. They did use a lot of guys who might have had starts in 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 the bullpen. So oh, that's who I mean. I think the Red Sox oh. were oh, very I think creative, Astros. but I think they're kind of holding on by a string with that creativity. They don't seem like they feel they have four starters. I guess it's one of those things that we will just have to see. Yeah. And on that note, uh, thank you guys for listening to Dan and I talk about football rivalries that neither team cares about and men football holding gun rivalries. Uh, the UConn UCF. Oh, oh, I forgot about I forgot about the football. That, that, okay. I thought it was like, oh, did we talk about football? Because I was talking about baseball the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you meant the old NFL St. Louis Cardinals. It's amazing how well we've uh, we've managed to hold this conversation together about different sports. Yeah, you know, the Simpsons are so old at this point that they made a joke about St. Louis losing their team, and it was still the Cardinals at that point. And while the show has been going on, (laughs) St. Louis got another team, had a long run, had Super Bowl win, and lost it again. And the show is still on. That's pretty amazing. Well, I hope Fangraphs Audio does not stay on that long, because I don't have any desire to do anything for that long. But... I also hope that you'll enjoy this and listen to the rest of the show and listen to us again next week. Uh, Dan, it was great talking to you. Enjoy, I guess, the game that is in the past when you guys listen to this, but in the future when Dan and I are talking about it. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Bill Koch for joining us. Remember to check out the Fangraphs.com shop as well as sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter, is the best way to hear about all the great things we have going on, which is a lot, especially right now. Good luck to your team in October, and we will talk to you next week.